Section 1 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 2, Numbers 3 to 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Arctic Cruise of the USS Thetis in the Summer and Autumn of 1889, Part 1 by Charles Herbert Stockton. A German writer of note once said, in the course of a discussion upon certain French characteristics, that the trouble with the French people is they do not know geography. Whether this is still true of the French as a nation, or whether the authority may be considered a good one, it is not pertinent for me to say. But I feel that of the nations of the world, this country, above all others, England perhaps alone excepted, should not have the want of knowledge of geography classed among its national failings. We have, however, very much geography yet to learn, as individuals and as a nation, not only of countries beyond our own, but particularly of our own continent and of our own domain, while commercial geography is almost an unknown and forbidden study. Professional geographer as I am, as member of the naval service, I find that every cruise adds to my geographic knowledge, and in giving an account of the cruise during last summer of the ship which I had the honour to command, I trust that I may be enabled to present some geographic facts as interesting to my fellow members of the Geographic Society as they were novel and instructive to myself. Before beginning my narrative, however, let me give you an idea of the extent of the shoreline of the territory or semi-colonial province along which so much of our cruise was made. Alaska has an area of about 580,000 square miles, consisting of a large mainland with a coastline 6,650 miles in length, and also of more than 1,100 islands, with a coastline of 2,950 miles, the entire coastline being 9,600 miles. The coastline of the rest of the United States, including islands, is only 6,580 miles, thus making the coastline of Alaska 3,020 miles, more than the coastline of all of the rest of the United States. Of this great country, the part known best and visited annually by tourists is that insignificant portion of southeastern Alaska which consists of the Alexander Archipelago and its neighbouring main coastline, differing in its scenery, topography, climate and native inhabitants from the greater part of this vast territory. It is fortunate, however, that this corner of Alaska is so easily and comfortably reached by the summer traveller, as with the exception of the coastline and inlets between Sitka and Kodiak, which includes the Fairweather Ground and the St. Elias Range of Mountains, this portion contains perhaps the finest and most striking scenery and the largest and grandest glaciers in the territory, if not in all North and South America. The USS Thetis 
was assigned in 1889 to the duty of looking out for the commercial and whaling interests of the United States in the Bering Sea and the Arctic Ocean, to which was subsequently added the duty of assisting in the establishment and erection of a house of refuge in the vicinity of Point Barrow, the most northerly point of our Arctic possessions. The duty assigned to the Thetis did not include the protection of the sealing interests of the United States, nor of those interests enjoyed by the Alaska Commercial Company as the regular lessees from the United States of the Pribilof group of islands. This was confided to the Revenue Marine Service of the Treasury Department. The Thetis left San Francisco on the 20th of April, 1889, and after a detention of a month at Tacoma, upon the placid waters of Puget Sound, awaiting supplementary orders, reached Port Tongass in extreme southeastern Alaska on the 31st of May, and Sitka, the territorial capital, upon the 2nd of June. After a stay of six days at the latter place, the vessel left for the island of Unalaska, one of the Aleutian chain, which was safely reached after a stormy passage early on the morning of the 17th of June. The revenue steamer Richard Rush, commanded by Captain Shepherd, was found at anchor at this place, having arrived a few hours before the Thetis. She had entered upon the duty of patrolling Bering Sea between Unalaska and the Pribilof group for the protection of the sealing interests. The seals approached the hauling out grounds and breeding places upon the islands of St. Paul and St. George in lanes, as it were, from the Pacific, reaching Bering Sea by means of the various passages between the Aleutian Islands and converging as they approached the seal islands the position of which seems so well known to them the marauders as the men on the sealing schooners are called who hunt them on their way north shoot them from small boats killing the many in order to procure the few unalaska or rather the village and harbour of illiluk upon the islands of unalaska is the principal and most frequented harbour in the aleutian islands and from its position is a most convenient port for coaling watering and provisioning en route to the seal islands st michael's at the mouth of the yukon river the anchorages in and near bering strait and the arctic ocean this harbour is the headquarters of all of the districts of the Alaska Commercial Company and is the principal coaling and distributing station and rendezvous of their vessels in Alaska. The company here affords facilities in the way of buoyage, wharfage, etc., which are not only useful to their own vessels, but of great service to government and other vessels whose duty or interests call them to these waters. The revenue steamer Bear was to be met by us at Unalaska in order that we could take from her any portion of the store and material to be used in the constructing and provisioning of the house of refuge at Point Barrow that her commanding officer decided to transfer to us. While awaiting the arrival of the Bear, the Thetis was watered and cold and prepared for the northerly trip before her. An opportunity offered me by the delay was availed 
of to inspect the storehouses of the Alaska Commercial Company at this point. The most interesting of the storehouses was that containing the skins and furs collected in the various parts of the district of which this place was the depot. The finest of furs was that of the sea otter, probably the most valuable fur in the world, a very superior skin of that animal having been sold at the great fur market in London for £170. Such otters are found in the vicinity of Unalaska and the outlying rocks and islands as far east as Kodiak and are becoming more and more difficult to obtain causing greater risk and hardships every year to the Aleuts, who hunt these animals as a principal means of livelihood. Besides the otters, the storehouse held the furs of the beautiful silver-grey fox, and those of the blue, the cross, and the snowy white arctic fox. There were also black and brown bearskins, beaver and fur seal, the latter, though the greatest and most profitable source of revenue to the company, being by no manner of means among the more valuable of the raw furs. To exchange for furs collected, either directly by natives or by independent traders, the Alaska Commercial Company has a large assortment of stores, provisions and goods, worthy of a large country store, or a maces in miniature, which are sold to the natives for money or in exchange for the furs they bring the company. And just here can be seen the commercial aspects of civilization. As the natives become used to the luxuries and comforts of a civilized and semi-civilized state of life, their wants and their purchases increase, and the securing of one otter skin will not, as in times past, satisfy their wants or the requirements of their wives and families. Hence they become both greater producers and consumers, more otters are hunted for, and the company is the gainer. The houses in which the Aleuts and Creoles reside at Unalaska were found to be well built of frame, sufficiently large and fairly clean. The old houses of earth and sod standing nearby show the great improvement that has been made of late years in the method of living. Upon the 22nd of June the revenue steamer Bear came into the anchorage and the Thetis and the Bear, one's companionships in the Greeley Relief Expedition, met again in the far north. Upon conference with the commanding officer of the Bear, Captain M. A. Healy, it was found that he did not consider it desirable to break the bulk of his cargo and share the stores for the refuge station with us. Hence, being free to pursue our course, we left on the 24th of June for the island of St. Paul, one of the Seal, or Pribilof, islands. We arrived at these islands on the evening of the 25th of June, after groping around in the heavy and almost constant fog and mist that envelop them. During our short stay at St. Paul, we were able to see a drive of seals from a rookery and the killing, skinning and packing which followed. But what we found to be the most interesting was the visit to the rookeries, both from the inshore side and from boats along the seafront. The systematic partition of the grounds, the formation of the harems, the exclusion of the young males, and the aggressive conduct of the older ones all proved most interesting and novel. 
This, however, has been described so often that I will not here repeat it. Leaving these islands, so unlike any others in the world, we proceeded to the north and west to St. Matthew Island, a large and uninhabited island in the middle of Bering Sea. The object in visiting this island was twofold, the first being to ascertain if there were any shipwrecked persons upon the island, the other being to verify the statement made upon the chart we possessed that the island was infested with polar bears. This was ascertained after honest and fatiguing endeavour to find them by parties of officers and men from the ship who scoured the eastern part of the island, both upon the hills and upon the low tundra, but without success. St. Matthew Island is probably the southern limit of the solid ice in winter in this part of Bering Sea the ice below it to the southward and toward the Aleutian chain being made up of newer ice and detached flows of well-broken ice. It is surrounded by the ice during seven months of the year and generally enveloped with fog during the remaining five months. Winds and rains sweep over it during the summer, the lowland being composed of wet grassy tundra while the higher elevations are formed of scories and volcanic rock. A large quantity of driftwood found piled up upon the steep shingle beaches probably came down the Yukon River from the interior of Alaska, there being no growth of trees upon this desolate island. After leaving St. Matthew Island, we stood over the Siberian side of Bering Sea in order to ascertain the whereabouts of the whaling fleet and, if possible, to gather some news concerning the fate of the whaling bark, Little Ohio, a vessel that had been missing since the previous autumn. Plover Bay, Cape to Haplin, and St. Lawrence Bay, upon the Siberian side, were all visited in turn but without success, and I then determined to pass through Bering Strait and enter the Arctic Ocean. This was done upon the 3rd of July, after a heavy snowstorm in the morning, followed later in the day by a fog so dense that we passed through the straits without seeing land on either side or the Diomede Islands in the middle. Entering the Arctic, we pushed on toward Point Hope, to the northward of which the little Ohio had last been seen. On the morning of the 4th of July, the land about Point Hope was sighted and soon afterwards we met our first ice coming out in flows from Kotzebue Sound, stretching some distance from the shore and slowly moving to the northward and westward with the current. Skirting along this ice with the hope of getting around it to the northward of Point Hope without success, we entered it, and after working through it for several miles with considerable difficulty, we finally cleared it and came to anchor off the native village at Point Hope, finding there two whalers who had just preceded us and obtaining the news that the bark, Little Ohio, had been wrecked directly opposite the point where we were then at anchor. 
taking on board the next day those survivors of this shipwreck who still remained at this place we left for st michael's near the mouth of the yukon river there to transfer the survivors to the steamer of the alaska commercial company and to send the news of this sad disaster to the navy department and to the world in passing through the ice outside of Point Hope, the first polar bear of the season was sighted, posing upon a high flow of ice. A few shots settled his case, and his body was fortunately secured, his skin now forming one of the trophies of the cruise. On our way back through Bering Strait, we found the vexatious combination, to be met with again and again in the cruise, of a heavy fog, much drift ice, and an opposing current. Reaching St. Michael's, we found there two steamers of the Alaska Commercial Company at anchor, besides several river steamers and a summer rendezvous of natives from the coast, miners from the interior, and traders and missionaries from the Yukon, all here to meet their annual mails and supplies. In addition, there was a party of government surveyors to determine the boundary line, an account of whose early journey has been given to the society by Mr. Russell. There were seventy-three tents by actual count pitched about St. Michael's at the time of our stay and the abodes of these temporary residents. St. Michael's is the most northerly settlement and trading post of the Alaska Commercial Company. It is the outlet of the Yukon River trade and also the source of supplies for the country bordering upon the Yukon and its many tributaries reaching in this way a portion of the Northwest Territory of the Dominion of Canada west of the Rocky Mountains. In the winter time, the post consists of the offices and storehouses of the Alaska Commercial Company with a few residences for their white employees and a small native village. Small, light draft, stern wheel steamers ascend the Yukon and its tributaries for a distance of 1,700 miles, reaching the mouth of that river in part by an inside channel and in part by 60 miles of outside coasting. After a short stay at St. Michael's, we proceeded to Port Clarence, where a large number of the whaling fleet were met, consisting of seven steam whalers, six sailing whalers, one trading vessel, and a sailing tender. From the tender, these vessels received coal, provisions, and supplies, sending back to San Francisco the oil and whalebone of the spring catch. Port Clarence is the best, as it is the last harbour on the american side before reaching the arctic where no harbours exist worthy of the name west of herschel island there is no native settlement of any size on the bay but natives assemble here from the surrounding country and islands to trade with the whale ships in summer Leaving Port Clarence, we ran to the southward by King Island to St. Lawrence Island in search of a sailing tender that was long overdue. Returning after a short stay off the village near Cape Prince of Wales, we again entered the Arctic Ocean. As it was too early to go to Point Barrow, we proceeded to Kotzebue Sound and Hotham Inlet. In the vicinity of the latter place, every year a summer rendezvous of natives occurs for trading purposes. 
the Eskimos from the Diomedes and Cape Prince of Wales bringing articles of trade from Siberia, while the Eskimos from Point Hope bring articles obtained from the whalers. These Eskimos are met by the inland natives from the rivers that flow into Hotham Inlet and Kotzebue Sound, principally from the Kowak, the Noatak, and Salawick rivers. The nearest available anchorage we found was Cape Blossom, from which place we visited the rendezvous and were visited in turn by the natives. We had now been enjoying for some time twenty-four hours of daylight, the midnight sun having lighted our way to and from Point Hope during our first visit to that place. Leaving Cape Blossom upon the 24th of July, we stood out of Kotzebue Sound for the northward, running the greater part of the time in a heavy fog. We passed Point Hope on the 25th, Cape Lisburn on the 26th, and anchored off Cape Sabine early in the morning of the 27th of July. Nearby was a very wide vein of lignite coal from which the Thetis had been coaled the previous year and to which the name of Thetis coal mine had been given. This had been worked during the present summer also, and a party of natives who were encamped nearby had furnished coal to some of the whalers. Being now in the vicinity of a stream known to the natives as the Pitmagia, I went into a whale-boat to examine its mouth and entrance, as this stream was unknown to but few whites, and did not exist upon any charts or maps. It was found to have but three feet of water on the bar at its entrance, but after crossing this a depth of six feet was found. The stream was found so full of bars and shoals, that we could ascend but a short distance after entering it. The river and its narrow valley were very winding, the general course being northwest from its source to the coast. After the spring thaw and the rains that follow, the stream rises to a depth sufficient for the natives to ascend and descend it with their light draught skim boats for a distance of about forty miles. Its length is estimated to be over 100 miles. The river had been explored the previous year by John W. Kelly, who was this summer employed on board the Thetis as the official interpreter, and to him I am indebted for the following description of the ice cliff existing upon the banks of the Pitmagia and also of a peculiarly built stone hut near the source of one of the tributaries. Ice Cliff on the Pitmagia This ice cliff is about 25 miles from the mouth of the Pitmagia, at a place where the hills run their spurs out to the banks of the river, closing the picturesque valley that stretches away to the sea coast in an almost unbroken width of a mile. A glacier faces southward and receives the full benefit of the sunlight during the short polar summer. Gales have deposited particles of soil and debris of plants, along with their seeds, upon the surface of the ice to a depth of from four inches to a foot. The snowfall of winter soon vanishes before the June sun, while the light covering above the glacier preserves it intact. Vegetation is warmed into life in a remarkably short time, 
and the brown coat left by the receding snow is almost miraculously transformed to a robe of green and studded here and there with bright polar flowers there being buttercups dandelions yellow poppy bright astragals gentians daffodils and marguerites the latter are small and unobtrusive making a showing in a modest way as if they wished to apologize to their sister flowers for their appearance among them like beautiful orphan girls one cannot resist a compassionate tenderness of feeling toward them but these innocent little flowers chaste as the ice-field upon which they grow bloom in the polar garden with as much right as the glacier's gentian besides flowers there are the hardy grasses whose roots penetrate the light covering of soil to the ice-bed whence they derive their nourishment a few arctic willows are to be seen but they only grow about a foot in length and trail upon the ground the pitmegia river is gradually cutting into the glacier receding from its opposite bank and leaving a bed of gravel behind during the summer the ice melts away leaving the protruding soil above it like the eaves of a house when it protrudes too far for the strength of the grass roots it topples over into the river at the freezing in september icicles freeze from the overhanging sod to the river ice below forming a narrow portico four miles in extent end of section one